I've learned throughout my life is that anger and judgment don't solve problems or break down barriers. And what does are, are the teachings that I, I grew up with. And those are love and compassion and service. And they move us forward. To live in our world today is to sit with the heaviness of the many contexts of oppression, violence, and injustice that exist. It can feel overwhelming and even disempowering, especially for those of us who want to drive change. Where can we go? Who can we turn to? Who do we need to be to find light in the dark? To wrestle with these questions, I am thrilled to be in conversation with someone who, despite experiencing so much adversity, continues to find humanity and light in the world. My colleague at the Aspen Institute, Simran Jeet Singh. Growing up in South Texas, Simran and his family confronted racism daily. Simran has described himself as a turban-wearing, brown skin, and beard-loving Sikh who has chosen to be defined not by the negativity that often surrounded him, but by the Sikh wisdoms of love and justice that he grew up with. Delving deep into these core tenets of Sikh wisdom, he has sought to embrace an outlook that guides us to see the good in everyone and to forge a path of positivity, connection, curiosity, and service, a life that so many of us are seeking in today's world. In his new book, The Light We Give, Simran explores how everyone can learn the insights and skills that have kept him engaged and led him to commit to activism without becoming consumed by anger, self-pity, or burnout. Last month, I was in conversation with Simran on the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th attacks during a program hosted by the Aspen Institute's People and Culture team. This reflective dialogue on identity, community, and personal happiness left folks with new perspective and practical wisdom for seeing the light in our darkest moments. I am so grateful to share this experience with you now. This is, of course, September 11th today. So this is a really unique experience and an opportunity to really get to know Simran and his work a bit more, his book, and we'll see where it goes from there. So maybe just to start, Simran would love if you could introduce yourself and share a bit more about what inspired your book. Thank you, Dar, and thank you everyone for being here. I'm Ms. Simran. I lead the Religion and Society program here at the Institute. And, you know, a lot of what I do now is shaped by, by my experiences of growing up in this country. As some of you may have noticed, I wear a turban as part of my religious practice. My parents moved to this country about four decades ago, which is about the time that I was born. And I was born and raised in Texas, one of the very few Sikh families wearing turbans in South Texas, where we grew up. And so part of my upbringing was figuring out how to deal with the daily racism that came my way. And that started from a young age, you know, elementary school. I remember I have memories from preschool even. And now I have girls who are that age and I am deathly afraid of, of them facing the same kinds of challenges I did. And you know, part of what I'm trying to instill in them and part of what I've come to really appreciate in my own life is, you know, in the face of adversity that we all face, there are lessons we can take away that can serve us and help us find happiness and justice throughout our lives. And so 
writing this book in some ways was a, a, a deep desire that I felt to share the story with my fellow Americans of what it's like to grow up in this country and to live in this country looking this way. And at the same time, it was a, I, I hope to offer to people some of the lessons I've learned in the hopes that they may they may not have to learn them through personal experience and, and can hopefully learn by learning through through one another. And so that that was in, in many ways the inspiration behind the book. Thank you for sharing. I mean what a contribution of having your own reflection and, and process and catharsis be a guide to all of us as well. And we mentioned at the beginning of the call, of course, that today is September eleventh and that's in your book. Would you mind kind of taking us back to that day and share some of those memories with us? Yeah, it's it's it was a pivotal moment in my life, and therefore uh, it becomes a pivotal moment in the book, which which in many ways traces the story of my of my life here in this country. I was a senior in high school, and the semester had just started, and it was it was it was supposed to be you know senior year is beginning. It's supposed to be the fun year. You don't do any work. Uh, you hang out with your friends. You have a car. I think I didn't say this. Um, I'm assuming there are no younger people listening, but like you skip school whenever you can. That's what that's what senior year is for. And I think it was two weeks into the school year in Texas. We start in August when uh, I was walking through passing period, and I heard whispers. You know, kids were talking, and they said there was there was a terrorist attack in in New York City. And I mean, if you grew up in Texas or a place like Texas, I mean, there's no place like Texas. I think I'm contractually obligated to say that as someone who was born there. But if you grow up in Texas or the Midwest, like New York is like another country. Like I, I'd never been there. I hadn't even really imagined it as being part of our country. And, and it didn't really strike me at first that this was a significant thing that happened. I remember actually making a joke, a joke that I thought was funny at the time, just to one of my friends and said, oh man, I hope they weren't wearing turbans. And I, and I think, no, I don't think it's funny anymore. Maybe I did then, but I, I do think it indicates that it, already I had a sense of what would change uh, for me based on my own experience. So we hear these rumors. My friends and I all go to my history teacher's classroom. Ms. Strong was was the teacher. She's the teacher we all hung out with and we're very close to. And, and we go to her classroom and she has the TV on. We all stand there and watch the towers come down, the first one. And then while we're watching, the second tower is hit. And, you know, nobody talks. It's probably half an hour or so. And after about half an hour, the anchor says, we have reports of a suspect. And I hadn't heard of Osama bin Laden at the time, but they, they said his name and showed his image. And I remember Miss Strong looking over at me. And then all my friends looked over at me. And these were people who knew me well. Their looks weren't accusatory. They weren't judging me thinking that I had done something wrong. They were more like sympathetic. They saw me and they saw that image and they had a sense of what would happen. And my heart just sank in, in that moment. I knew my life would change forever. And, and it did. My mom picked us up early, pretty much immediately. My brothers and me from school, we went home, we locked the doors, which we never used to do growing up in our neighborhood. I, that was really significant to me as, as a sign of what was happening. And we started watching TV, trying to understand what was happening to our country. And the death threat started that day. First by phone, later people driving by. But it was, I mean, it was intense and it felt like, it felt really confusing is, is maybe, maybe the most honest way to explain it that, you know, I'm an 18 year old kid and I'm trying to understand what's happening to my country. I feel attacked as an American. Then I'm trying to understand what's happening to me and why people are attacking 
me. You know, I think I'm one of them and they think I'm not one of them. You know, it's, it's, it was such a strange experience and felt super dark. I mean, in the same way that for many of us, you, you feel threatened, your country is under attack. We have violence on our soil for the first time in my lifetime, at least. And, and that sort of shatters your understanding of safety. And then also you feel like actually other people see you as, as their enemy, as the perpetrator, and it's paralyzing in a way. And, and that was probably the most vivid feeling I have in that day, at the end of that day, the feeling of confusion, like, what do I do? And, and how do I get people to understand who I am? Yeah, it's, I have memories, my, my step family, uh, I was very close with in high school, we all lived together in New Jersey, very devout, practicing Muslims. And also, I remember the very acute seeing how differently we were treated in those weeks and months and years to come. Like there was a real breaking open of our mm. experience living in the same part of New Jersey before 9-11, it being pretty much the same experience or, you know, not the same, but it was very, very different after. And like how much of our identities were ruptured as young people or questioned what does it mean to be here? What does it mean to be in this country? What does it mean? Like identity really looking at critically during that time. That's part of, it's part of the story that's really open, especially when we talk about issues like racism, right? It's it's not like I hadn't dealt with racism before. It's not like this was a new feeling. It's not like, you know, racism didn't exist before George Floyd was murdered, right? Like these, these things are historical realities and we do ourselves a disservice by telling ourselves a story that, hey, this significant moment happened and all of a sudden everyone's lives changed. And I think both are true, right? In my experience, my life changed in terms of intensity and, and that intensity shifted the way that I understood myself. I had to ask myself new questions about what it meant to be an American and if I really fit and what I needed to do to deal with other people's judgments. Like absolutely those were transformative experiences for me. And it's so important for us to recognize that this kind of thing has been happening historically, just, just in the way that you described our. So I, I really appreciate that one. I think of also in the moments or the weeks after a rupture, how all sorts of meaning making happens in communities and like narratives crystallize or questions get brought up. So I, I wonder if you can kind of continue to share beyond that day, like that next year, what was that like for you and your family? It's such a good way of framing that question, because I do think it would be easy to, for me to sit here, you know, however many years later and tell you a story of where I am now and then how I view it now. But but I think it's important to try and step back into my shoes and be honest about that experience. I mean, again, confusion being the, the most poignant feeling that I can recall. And part of that confusion, again, I mean, I think all of us can imagine this to some degree, right? We all have ways in which we present ourselves in this world. I mean, it can be things we choose and things we don't choose. And, and then there are constantly people around us judging us and making assumptions about us uh, based on what they see. And, you know, my brothers and I were under no illusion that we were typical Americans, even though in many ways we felt like typical Americans, but we knew like people would remind us that we weren't really from here. And the acuteness of the experience after 9-11 and in the weeks and months that followed, I mean, I felt it a lot through the stories of violence. I actually just published an article today about a sick doctor who was one of the first on the scene at Ground Zero, and he spent the entire day and night serving victims. And then immediately afterwards was harassed for being an enemy. And it's that juxtaposition of being both an insider and an outsider and recognizing to a degree, many of us figure out how to do this from a young age, how to have the 
depth of confidence in yourself that you're not so worried about what other people think. And in that moment felt crucial. If I was to start worrying about what people assumed about me, then I, I would be consumed by it. And, and for a while I was, as I was trying to figure this out. And at the same time, I was also aware that I couldn't ignore what people thought about me, right? As much as I wanted to say that it didn't matter and, and have the confidence in myself, I was recognizing that through the violence, the harassment, you know, the murders, people we knew who were killed, I began to recognize that it's not just about the internal fortitude that you can cultivate. And, and, I, and I think you can. And I, and I read about this quite a bit in the book about what that looks like. I also started to understand that just ignoring the bigotry that comes your way, it's ultimately not going to save you. It's not going to protect you. It's going to turn around and get someone else and then come back your way. And I think this was the moment, I think, especially growing up in Texas, there are a lot of reasons why you don't want to escalate a situation, right? Like my wife and I were just talking about this the other day. If we live in New York now, if someone takes your parking spot, you hop out of your car and you shout at them for five minutes and then they shout at you and then, and then you walk away and that's that's life, right? And in Texas, you can't do that because you don't know, right? You don't know what someone might be carrying and it's part of the culture. And I understand why my parents were so insistent that when people were hateful towards us that we turn the other cheek, right? Like it was people go low and you go high as, as Michelle Obama teaches us, but also it's a function of safety. And that was really important. Ultimately, if, if safety is the critical step, it's what we're trying to create for ourselves and our families. I, I realized in this moment that actually ignoring people's hate was not creating safety and maybe in the moment, but not in the long term. And I think I didn't come across this quote until later, but this is where I think the shift for me, recognizing that standing up and speaking up was a matter of survival for myself and for my family to me is where I got, I went from being what Angela Davis would describe as a non-racist, right? Somebody who disagrees with it, but doesn't really do anything about it into an anti-racist where I, I proactively made the decision that I, I wanted to devote my life to addressing these issues. I think that's a long way of describing what this experience did for my, my trajectory, but it really was this deep feeling of this understanding that actually, maybe it's strategic in, in a sense, right? Like understanding that the strategies we often use to create safety are actually undercutting what, what it is that we're actually trying to build. And, and I think that was a, an important shift in my thinking and an awareness that I developed through this period. Yeah, it strikes me as strategic as well as spiritual in some sense, like thinking of the light you give. And we're kind of starting to touch on, I don't know, I'm thinking of like the four, four years after high school, let's say, where so much of our identity is being formed. We're figuring out like what injustice is and how to be in a world and make it better. And these kind of like cataclysmic questions that what you're describing, I'm like, man, you must have accessed so much how did you access that? How are you not angry more? How did your spiritual self evolve? So I guess a question maybe or the prompt is like, I'm now thinking about your book explicitly and around the idea of light. How did this like maybe like connect this context that we're building to how your own, I'll say like maybe religious practice, spiritual practice, way, way of figuring out how to be in the world was formed during that? Mm, it's such a good question. And, and the reality is as cool as I think I can make myself sound, uh, the, the truth is that a lot of this came from the, the wisdom of my parents and how they, how they taught us to 
deal with the adversity that we in, encountered throughout our life. And I, can, I can share a couple of examples, but I think here's the upshot. And that is what I've learned over my life. And, you know, there were plenty of encounters with racism and bigotry throughout to, to teach me. Uh, but what I've learned throughout my life is that anger and judgment don't solve problems or break down barriers. And what does are, are the teachings that I, I grew up with. And those are love and compassion and service. And they move us forward. And I learned these tenants early on as a sick, but also from my parents. And, and I've learned in moments when I'm confronted with racism and anger that I, I've become more successful. I found myself to be happier, to be more nourished when I'm able to keep these tenants in mind. Now, there's this moment pretty soon after 9-11 where, again, it, I mean, I, I was feeling despair, right? Like people from other countries are trying to kill us. People from our own country are trying to kill us. We're locked up at home. We're not going outside. People are driving by and calling us to tell us how much they hate us. I mean, and, and people we knew were killed in this hatred. And it just felt so hopeless. And, and I remember walking downstairs one day and my dad is at the front door and he looks at me and he says, man, aren't we so lucky? And I just look at him and I'm like, I roll my eyes. I'm so annoyed, right? Like I'm an 18 year old. I don't, I don't want his like lesson in this moment. Like, let me, let me be angry. Let me be hopeless. And I don't even think I asked him, what do you mean? Like, I was just like, whatever, like say, say your thing and let us be done. <laughs> and he says, haven't you noticed that all your neighbors have been coming by and giving us meals because they know we can't go out? I mean, haven't you noticed that your coaches and your teachers have been calling to check in on you and your teammates have been coming by to check in on you? And aren't we so lucky? Like it's maybe 20 seconds, a simple question. I didn't say anything because again, I'm 18. I don't want him to think I'm learning from him. You can't give up your position. Write about it years not. later, but not that. <laughs> <laughs> but like the thing is he didn't have to say anything else because what I heard in that moment was, and something I've really tried to live into in the years since, is it's always a choice how you want to see the world. And as hard as things feel, and as hard as they are sometimes, it's also true that there are beautiful things happening around us all the time. And what I've come to understand is, you know, it's fair and it's reasonable to focus on the negative, right? That's It's a survival mechanism. We need to know what the threats are so that we deal with them appropriately. What I've also learned is when we focus on the negative, it's really easy to get lost in it and to forget all the good stuff that's happening too. And his reminder in that moment, his annoying reminder in that moment was just, hey, sure, I, I get that life is hard and things feel tough right now, but don't forget, don't forget to notice all the good stuff happening all around you. And that teaching, it's really helped me in the last several years have been, have been rough for lots of reasons and lots of reasons to give up hope and to feel despair. And when I do, and it, it happens to me as it happens to all of us, the practice has become, hey, what, what are you not noticing? What's happening around you that you're, that you're taking for granted? It's a funny thing to be having this conversation with you right now, Dar, because my wife and I this weekend had this conversation for ourselves where we were like, man, we're, we're feeling negative and we're feeling like we are entitled is the word we were using. Like we're, we have so many good things in our lives and we're still so focused on the things we don't have. And, and we were like, we just need to reset our attitudes. I mean, we all know this. It's not like my dad. That's why my dad didn't have to say anything else, right? Like 
he didn't have to explain the message. I already knew it. It was just, we need these reminders sometimes to make sure that we're resetting and focusing on the things that matter. Yeah. The idea around there's always a choice is, and as you say, the word practice, right? It's like, it speaks to this difference between like, okay, yes, I know this wisdom. And also I have a practice that lets me create response instead of reaction that lets me figure out how to create a pause when my nervous system is like ramped up. I'm curious what other practices come up for you that you've been cultivating in your life. This is this is a cool way to ask about your trajectory of your career, but also like in terms of yourself, what this practice around creating pause. And then the other thing I'm sitting with is how to be in a place where you're receiving corrosiveness of, of hate and fear, how you alchemize your reaction to that, how you didn't just react to it, but seeing the the love, as you said, in moments where it's hard. <laughs> I'd love to hear more about that practice. I'll tell you, I mean, here, here's the one that comes up most naturally, just based on what I shared most recently. So, so this practice of seeing the light in the world. Here's what that moment with my dad did for me. It turned me from seeing everything as dark to at least noticing some glimmers around me. And ultimately, it reinforced my belief, my conviction that there is more light in this world than there is darkness. There are more good people around you than there are people who are ugly. And consistently throughout my life, as challenging as racism in this country is, I found there are so many people who are there for you. Even in this moment of after 9-11, when things felt like they were at their worst, all of our friends, all of our teammates, all of our coaches, I mean, they were all coming out for us. And just proportionally, that, that was really powerful. The practice that I developed out of this, and I used it a lot during COVID, actually, the pandemic hits, we're in New York City. My wife is a anesthesiologist, so she's putting people on machines to help them breathe. And we get COVID or, I mean, it, it just felt like who knows what's going to happen. We had babies at home. It was, it was really scary. And it felt like we, it was a long time before we knew what would happen. And, and I felt like giving up. And when I did, I would take my elevator down, go out to the street and just watch people. This is, this is the practice. It's, it's a really simple one. And just watch people and notice what people do and how they are. And as much anger and frustration as you can have with the world. I mean, politically, I was so frustrated with where we were in this country when the pandemic hit. It felt like, you know, we were backsliding rapidly and that we were going to be nowhere quickly. And then I just go outside and I'd watch people and it would be, you know, somebody dropping a dollar bill and someone else picking it up and running and give it to, giving it to them or, you know, someone needing a bus and not being able to catch it and, and someone else running ahead and stopping the bus, which in New York City is like the, the most angelic thing <laughs> that you could ever do for someone. The thing is like none of these moments are saving anyone's life, right? Like it doesn't have to be that big. But I think also our perception is that all around us, acts of kindness are random, right? We, we describe them as random acts of kindness, but I think the reality is they're not so random, right? This is how people are. And when we can step out and see that and remind ourselves of that, that they can help protect us from slipping into these moments of despair. I mean, I'll, I'll share one other with you. And it's one that Sarah and I were talking about earlier. And it's it's this lesson I learned from my mom when I was in fourth grade. So I was about 10. 
in. And, and we walk into this, it's my older brother's class party. So it's the four of us and my poor mom is taking us into this roller skating rink. And we walk in and the manager, as soon as we walk in, is shouting. And he's like, get out of here with those damn rags on your heads. And he's upset and we get upset and my mom goes to deal with it. We're, we're waiting for her to resolve it so we can go skate with our friends. And after some time, she's, we're getting impatient. I go to get her and, and she looks at me and I see tears streaming down her face. And I am 10. I've never seen her cry before. I just start crying, right? Like, I don't know what else to do. And I remember her holding me by the shoulder and just saying, you know, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And I said, well, obviously, same as you. I mean, this isn't fair. They should let us skate with our friends. It's, it's not right. And she said, oh, actually, I'm not crying for that reason. I'm, I'm crying because we're so lucky. And I, I look at her, like, I understand you're an immigrant to this country. I understand. <laughs> like, maybe you don't understand the situation. And I'm like, what is there to feel lucky about? And she says, well, I just talked to the parents and the teachers and the classmates, and they all agreed to walk out together. And aren't we so lucky that we have people who care about us? I mean, I'm... I wouldn't say I'm shocked, but it, this was the first moment where it, I felt like the people around me understood what my life was like and that they were there for me. I mean, it was such a powerful, I didn't know the words allyship or solidarity as a 10 year old, but like, that's, that's what it felt like. And here I am now, 39 years old, I have kids about that age now. As I mentioned at the beginning, that's my biggest fear that they get bullied or discriminated against. And I, I can't help them. And, and in this case, like I look at my mom's example and she should have felt so helpless, right? Like she's in a new country. She has four boys, first of all, like, that. <laughs> like what, what is one supposed to do with that? And she, in a moment where she should have felt absolutely powerless, and this is what you were sort of alluding to earlier, Dar, like she's a victim in this story, right? In my story of 9-11, I'm a victim. But how do you take that experience of being a victim and turn it into agency? How do you create power out of that situation? And that's what my mom was able to do. And she did that through community. She did that through recognizing the people around her might care and giving them a chance to show up for her and her kids. And she also did that by being clear about her values. To me, in these situations, when I'm confronted with racism, and it happens often enough, that's what I find myself going back to as a practice. How am I going to walk away from the situation feeling proud? At the roller skating rink, like with any situation, the easiest thing for her would have been to take off our turbans and go home and say, you know, it's sad, but it's not a big deal. You'll get over it. And the, the other option, as we do in New York, is she could have yelled at the manager for, <laughs> for half an hour, an hour, whatever, right? It's just so easy for us to fall into those two options because that's our instinct, right? It's fight or it's flight. And I think the approach of, pausing in that moment and saying, I don't want those two options. Neither of those two options makes me feel proud when I walk away. And what is an alternative? How do I, how do I engage here without sucking in the negativity, but to create a positive outcome? And in this case, it's me 30 years later saying this informed the way that I want to live in the world. It shaped my view of what activism can look like what community means, but it also for these kids in my class, how would they have known what my life is like otherwise? How would they know how to show up for other people otherwise? It was a gift. And so to me, that's, that's the other practice of when things feel like there's no solution and you're jostling between fight and flight, pausing and saying, what else can I do? What are, what are other modes of engagement? And that's, that's become a really important practice for me.
I'm like sitting with how cool your parents are. <laughs> we're, we're bringing them into this conversation and the wisdom that either you observed from how they're re responding to things to direct wisdom and counsel they shared with you. And I'm also sitting with that you are a parent as well. How yeah. do you think their parenting is influencing your parenting? Oh, it's such a good question. I mean, I think about it often in the sense that I want nothing more than for my girls to be happy. That's the North Star, right? Like that's that's what we think about constantly and, and work towards daily. And and I look at my my parents and my brothers and I are all pretty happy. And I, and I was thinking about this, like what what did my parents do to raise us? And, and I think the other challenge is our contexts are so different. We're four decades later, the world feels like it's changed so much. We lived in Texas. I'm raising my girls in New York City. My parents were new immigrants and they had nothing when they came to this country and we're in a different context, my wife and I now. So, I mean, there's so many differences and it's interesting when I talk to them, to my parents and, and to my wife, and we talk about parenting together a lot. And the one challenge that feels the same is it's so easy to get distracted from the North Star of your kid's happiness. And I, I think this is a lesson for us as, as people too. And it's something that I'm trying to take to heart myself. It's so easy because we're smart and we can tell ourselves, well, we want happiness. One step away from happiness is X. You know, it's this job or this salary or, you know, this house or whatever it is, right? We, we constantly tell ourselves, this is the key to unlocking happiness. Whereas we know truly already inside of us that we're just fooling ourselves, that that's not actually how you get happiness. And I, I mean, I'll tell you with parenting, it's so easy to trick yourselves into thinking you're doing the right thing with for your kids and doing it for the right reasons. But then you, you step back and you reflect and hold yourself accountable. And you say, actually, I got a little lost there. I got caught up in prestige or money or wh whatever, all these things that distract all of us. So that's probably in terms of talking to my parents and, and to my partner, the one consistency and our biggest focus area every day is how do you focus on the kids' happiness and make sure that's priority number one? Yeah, that's incredible. I'm like writing that down as I hear my toddler eat breakfast in the background. <laughs> um, and like how tricky it is sometimes to tell, or I found like how much this is true with life and also true with parenting and also true with leading, how much that work demands understanding of our own selves. And like, when am I bringing my stuff into this? And when am I actually like tuned into what my child, my community, my coworkers, my partner, et cetera, need? And that just that constant kind of clarification of spirit that I find is, is needed to be in the world. So I don't know, that's, that's, that's coming up for me as you're talking. Like, where do you override? Because it's like, this will be good. I had a lot of, this will be good for you. Keep going to soccer, you know? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's hard. I, I think I think that's a challenge, finding the right balance there. And, and the other one that is coming up for me as you're saying that is the biases that are embedded within that constant process of unfurling. So again, one of the strangest things for me, I'll share this openly in case it's helpful to people. When it came to racism, I always saw myself as the victim. You know, people are racist to me. They say nasty things to me. Racism is their problem and I am the object of it. And it was in this this other transformative moment for me that happened in 2012 when a, a white supremacist massacred uh, people in our community that I, I was not finding. I, I mean, I was angry for months and couldn't, I just couldn't get over it. The thing that finally unlocked it for me was breaking out of the victim perpetrator binary. 
for my whole life, I was like, this is me and this is you. I'm the good guy and you're the bad guy. And I think the reality in all of this is nobody's good, nobody's bad. This is this is a core teaching in Sikh philosophy. Nobody's good, nobody's bad. Like we just are. Everyone is equally in our tradition. Everyone is equally divine. Everyone is equally light. And for me, what helped me overcome my anger had nothing to do with the other person, which is where I kept trying to go and found myself frustrated. Like I tried to get to know who he was. That didn't work. I tried to understand white supremacist ideology that actually made me more upset, <laughs> right? It, it, it just wasn't working. And, and what finally worked was starting to see within myself that I had the same racist or white supremacist ideas inside of me. And it was deeply uncomfortable. And I mean, it wasn't nearly to the extent of this other person. I'm not equating it and I, you know I'm not even excusing this person for what they did like of course that was messed up and I'm maybe unforgiving is the word right it's it's not that it's more the ability to break through that binary and see in ourselves that as we're leading our teams as we're parenting we might have some biases while we're also trying to help other people overcome their biases and that's that's a really complicated thing to have to navigate constantly yeah i'm thinking around in so many ways the work of social transformation let's say is done through the language of our relationships who are in relationship mm -hmm. and how we're in relationship with one another to that end, how we are in relationship with one another matters so much <laughs> in advancing a better world. It's not like, oh, I have this mission statement that I'm achieving. And also here's my family and friends. Like it'll, it is all kind of one in a sense. You know, I think about, I've been thinking about this a lot and I'm sorry, I'm going to be like tacky and bring in Aspen's new purpose statement right now, but <laughs> here, here we are. I've been really trying to think, like really grapple with the idea of building understanding, building common understanding through dialogue and what it's like to sit across from a seminar table or a table with someone that you don't just disagree with, but you oppose where all of those biases, where all of our life experiences, where the narratives, where we're wearing them on us and it's confronting us in how we show up with kindness with or, or not, right? And so, you know, I'm thinking around this idea that you brought up around, like, we always have a choice to say, this is how people are. Mm -hmm. So like your mom's, you know, the, and your dad's wisdom around, yes, all of these horrible things are happening, but I choose to say people are like this. People are generous. People are fill in the blank. So this kind of, I guess, question is like around like our moral imagination. What could be true if we were to choose as a community, as a group of people alive today, I won't even divvy it up in certain ways, that this is how people are, that people are this way instead of people are bad or out to get us or, you know, mm -hmm. perpetrators. So yeah, just welcome your kind of riffing in response to that observation. Well, maybe you're, what's, what's the word? Fishing. Maybe, maybe you're fishing for compliments because, you know, I just went to your action forum this summer and, and loved it. But, you know, one, one of the experiences that I, and we haven't talked about this, and so this is, this is anecdotal, but I think many of us at the Institute will have this kind of experience. What was surprising for me in the seminar rooms was as people opened up about themselves, people initially are uncomfortable and the vulnerability takes some time, but as, as they start to become comfortable and share about themselves, people in the room who felt like they had nothing in common with others 
all of a sudden are like, oh, I, I wouldn't have imagined that about you. And then they find points of connection. And one of the things that I'll say, this isn't just observational. This is actually my own experience in that room too. Even for those of us who are aware that this is how humans actually are, it's so hard to overcome the walls that we create around ourselves and, and around one another, as in you belong in this box, right? Like I'll, I'll tell you, there was a gentleman who talked about his kid's struggles with mental health and suicidal ideation. And then another gentleman opened up about his own daughter and then a woman opened. I mean, it was unbelievable to be sitting in that room and within 10 minutes go from we have nothing in common with each other. Why are we all here? Into, hey, we're all struggling with this exact same thing in our families. I mean, it's magical in a way in that the ability to connect within the course of five, 10 minutes, five, 10 days is, is there. And it's also a reflection on how we tend to relate with one another on a day-to-day -day basis, which speaks to why is it that we feel so strongly about our walls? Why is it that it feels surprising that we have something in common with one another where the statistics tell us that we all have mental health is a crisis in which everyone is affected to some degree and and we shouldn't be surprised, but we still are. So it's just, I don't know, I, I, that's the experience that I had in, in the seminar style. And I'll say I've, I've been surprised about that with reactions to my book. And I mean, I'll tell you my, my dream was that by telling people my authentic story and, and what my life is like and the challenges that I face, people would be interested, they would empathize, and they would also see themselves in it to some degree. But it's so hard to trust that that will happen in a society where we're so quick to judgment. We just say, hey, you're brown-skinned or you're religious or you're from Texas. I have no interest in your story, right? Like we, we do that all the time. And the kinds of reactions I've gotten from people unexpectedly. Last week I did an event and a woman talked about growing up bipolar in Arkansas and how much she resonated with my, I mean, I would have never described that kind of person as someone who I have something in common with, but it's just this gift of breaking down these barriers, I think is part of what this kind of engagement opens up. And it's something that I think we all benefit from when we do it. I mean, this conversation, your book, sharing this experience around seminar tables, cultivating that deep curiosity about other people makes the work of choosing that people are generous and justice seeking and loving, like all of that stuff makes it a lot easier. <laughs> One of the things that I'm, I'm like, I've been reflecting on the last few years in my life is I don't I don't have a lot of spaces where I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the cool thing that everyone on this call is Aspen that we get to do is provide those spaces. But like strengthening that musculature as an individual and as community of being able to cultivate curiosity about one another just feels like it has radical implications to the future. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think that's totally true. And I think, you know, as, as we're entering into a conversation about appreciating the things we take for granted, maybe that's one of them for those of us at the Institute. I mean, there are all sorts of things for us to complain about, most of which are legitimate, right? There's plenty of, of difficulties and challenges. And also we have riches all around us and, and to be cognizant of them and aware of them, I, th I think is really important too. So I, I agree with you that that's one that it feels really unique that most people don't have access to. And it's, it's something that can be really transformative for us. Absolutely. I always think that the fall feels to me in many ways, like a new beginning. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm coming out of, you know, a season of, of maybe like rest and celebration. And I'm like getting serious about what I'm, what I'm here for. And as we're at the kind of, at least in the U S the beginning of the fall, I'm wondering like what 
encouragement you have for us or what practices in a daily way that you might want to share with us. We've spent a lot of time on practice in this, but in the spirit of ending this conversation with giving listeners and our dear colleagues something to think about today, I'm curious how you'd respond to that. Here's here's one that I, I, I picked up probably about seven, eight years ago that, I, that I'm still on and, and feel and goes up and down for me. And it's gone up since since the action forum this summer. And that is, you know, I, I was pleasantly surprised, but also disappointed in myself, that feeling of newness of being connected to people. Why should we be surprised? Like, shouldn't that be normal? This practice that I've developed, it, it actually came up after a really ugly racist incident that I, I, I was dealing with and wasn't sure how to deal with. And the practice I developed was through a friend's guidance, taking 10 seconds every day. So not a big commitment, but taking 10 seconds every day to see this humanity in someone that you don't know. And maybe you start with people that you know, but you don't know that many people, right? Like pretty soon you'll be at a point where you're walking down the street and you know, you have to do 10 seconds and you see a bus driver or you see grocery attendant or you see someone in the office that you don't know. I mean, you don't, you don't have to know them, but just taking 10 seconds to appreciate that they are a person, a, a human being that you share space with. I, I think that to me has become a really important way of, of breaking down some of these walls that are constantly around us. In an era of darkness and distraction, I invite you to practice the art of noticing. Noticing the ways that the light gets in, of taking pause, of creating more ways for, as Simran says, to see the light in the world. I, for one, am leaving today noticing where, when I want to react, I can get curious instead. Perhaps a foundational practice for creating a world where we all belong. Simran leads the Religion and Society program at the Aspen Institute. The program aims to create understanding and share how religion can be leveraged to address social inequities and strengthen social cohesion. You can learn more about this work and Simran's book, The Light We Give, which is filled with much more wisdom like what was shared today in our show notes. Finally, another thank you to the Institute's people and culture team, as well as the Women of Color Affinity Group and the Men of Color Affinity Group for hosting this conversation and allowing us to share it with our community. Liminal is a podcast by the Aspen Global Leadership Network, the AGLN, a part of the Aspen Institute. It's produced by Samantha Cherry, Philip Havliana, and edited by Colby Hartberg. Our cover art is designed by J.L. Lewis. New episodes are released the last Saturday of every month. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow the AGLN at Aspen AGLN on social to stay connected with the community.